Well, we've spent the last uh, two or three months in the book of Revelation, and we are now all the way to chapter 10. We're almost halfway through the book. So that's pretty exciting. And we've seen a number of different things as we've gone through the book of Revelation. We've seen, first of all, that what is the book of Revelation about? It's about Jesus Christ. That's what it's about more than anything else. In chapter 1, it says the revelation from Jesus Christ. That word the NIV translates from could actually mean uh, about Jesus Christ. Uh, we can go either way. The NIV has chosen from, but you would be just as right to, chose about, uh, to choose about. Uh, so this book is telling us about Jesus, and it is also his message to the church and specifically to seven churches that represent the entirety of the church in Asia Minor and beyond in the first century. That's what chapters 2 and 3 are about. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we see that even though these churches are suffering on the earth, God is still God in heaven, and he is still making decrees about the earth. And we start to see what some of those decrees are in chapters 6, 7, uh, 8, and 9, where we've been so far. First, the seal judgments, in which essentially the forces of evil are unleashed upon the earth, not just with God's permission, but according to God's will. And to understand this, we might go back to Romans chapter 8, where it says, God has subjected the world to futility in hope that it will receive his salvation. So what's the point of the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments that we've been talking about the last several weeks. The point is that God is calling the world to repentance by showing them the natural outcome of sin. Remind you again of the four horsemen of the apocalypse who bring war and take away peace and take away economic security and who uh, do damage and deal death on the earth. And if we look around, we understand these are already at work in our world today. God is describing, Jesus is describing for his church, his judgment is already being poured out on the world. And yet we see at the end of the fourth seal, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, uh, I'm sorry, this is at the end of the sixth seal, if you're actually keeping track of whether or not I'm doing this right. All of these powerful people who have been in charge of the world up to this point call on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, Milton, in his book Paradise Lost, which I have come across because I watched a Star Trek episode where it was quoted, once quoted Satan, put words in Satan's mouth where Satan says, uh, It is better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And that's exactly the attitude we're seeing here. We don't call on God to save, but instead we call on the mountains and rocks to fall on us and hide us from the God who rules. But we see that even in the midst of all of the judgment poured out on the world and the hope that it will repent, God's people are sealed and protected. The sealing of the 144,000. If you're thinking 144,000 sounds a little round, like for the total number of people that are, are going to come in, that's because you're right. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel, times 12, so 12 representing each tribe, then times 12 for all of the tribes, and then finally 1,000 to make it a big number, 
right? Remember when you were a kid and you used to say, like, someday, you know, it was like there was a thousand of them there or something. You just chose a big number to impress everybody. And maybe it's a little more sophisticated here, but it's the same sort of idea. All of God's people represented by the tribes of Israel, Christian and Jewish Christian, everybody who follows Jesus Christ, sealed by God and protected so that even as chaos and death and destruction reign around God's people, even as they're impacted by the judgments that are in the world, where the rest of the world cries out, let the mountains and rocks fall on us and kill us and hide us from God, the Christians are guaranteed that one day they will be in God's presence and they will have no reason to fear. Uh, We've been talking about the trumpets and how they look at this judgment from a a different angle, where the seals talk about drawing out the evil in the world and showing it for what it is. The trumpets talk, in some senses, about our cooperation with evil itself and how it breaks our own hearts and breaks our own lives. And nowhere do we see it more clearly than in the fifth and sixth trumpets, which we heard about last week. The locusts who have the power to torment human beings with an unspeakable torment, and the horses and horsemen who have the ability to kill a third of the people on the earth. And in these, what we actually saw, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you can always catch it online. Uh, we're, We're up there, and you can do that. But what we saw is that it's our own ideas that take us to these places, right? The Uh, abyss is opened up in the fifth trumpet and smoke rises from it, like from a gigantic furnace. And what we know is that smoke obscures, doesn't it? We talked about living here over the last several years and we had the big fires and we couldn't even see the other side of the valley from the smoke. You didn't know what was happening over there. You hoped the fire wasn't racing down the hillside toward us, although that was pretty unlikely. Although not for you folks in Three Rivers, I know. And that's what our ideas in this world have done as well. We call evil good and good evil as a human race. And in so doing, we actually suffer the agony, the spiritual and emotional trauma of living in ways contrary to what God has set out for his people. Sometimes uh, those wrong ideas, those wrong things we do, sin, feels good for about a moment, and then we find it's a little bit like heroin. I'm told I've never done heroin, where it feels good at first, but then you need it more and more and more as it satisfies less and less and less. Give you a good example of this. Anyone here ever feel like complaining? It's okay. You can admit it. Yeah, we complaining feels pretty good, doesn't it? There are days you know you come home from work or from time with with family or whatever it is, and you're just so frustrated, and you want to unload on the person next to you, whatever poor person happens to be next to you, to hear all the terrible things about your day, and you start complaining and complaining. And you know, oh, I can't believe that this person did that, or that they did this other thing, or that they didn't do this thing, and it goes on. And, on. And, and here's what I've noticed about complaining. It feels really good while you're doing it, and you don't feel any different when you're done. Have you picked up on that? It feels really good while you're doing it, and it fixes nothing in our hearts. It doesn't relieve our stress. It doesn't make us feel better. Now, it can be that when the people around us say, I'm sorry that you've had such a bad day, and they give us a hug or something, that might make us feel better. They might just be doing it to shut us up. I don't know. (laughs) But that's what makes a difference. 
not the complaining itself. And the same thing is true with all of the wrong choices we make. They may feel better for a moment while we're doing it, but they steal our joy in the long run. Now, finally, we get to the end of the sixth trumpet. And if you're paying attention or if you've been reading along, when you get to the sixth seal, there's an interlude. That's where we see the 144,000 sealed. That's where God talks about the, the great group of people in heaven worshiping God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we take another interlude here after the sixth trumpet. And we see this angel and the little scroll. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, his face like the sun, and his legs like fiery pillars. And did you notice what touches the earth? You shouldn't be surprised. It's the legs like fiery pillars. That probably means something. And he was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. And I think there is a sense of bigness to this angel such that the scroll handed to Jesus Christ in chapter 5, that he alone is worthy to open, which begins God's great victory on the world through judgment and salvation. This is the same scroll here, or a similar type of scroll at the very least. And it's small in this mighty angel's hand. And if you notice where he's standing, he's got his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And I think this, too, gives us an idea of enormity, of an angel who's, who's ankle deep in the ocean, even though he's a thousand miles offshore, and standing at the same time on the earth, his feet like fire, bringing judgment to the earth. And if we're paying attention, it sure sounds like this mighty angel is either Jesus Christ himself or an an angelic representative of Jesus Christ. And as I was preparing this morning, as I was thinking about this, I was struck by how little we think of Jesus. I don't necessarily mean in duration of time, but in the greatness of who he is, how little we actually think of him. And you may be sitting out there this morning, and you may be saying, that's right, Pastor Ian, I don't think very much about Jesus. I'm not a Christian. I'm not sure I buy into all of this stuff. And let me tell you, you're in the right place. This is the place to search and find out if Jesus is really big or small, if he's worth thinking about a little bit or a lot. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, The Everlasting Man, talked about how the people best qualified to judge whether or not Christianity is true are not the nominalists who are kind of hanging out right in the middle. It's like, well, you know, I I go to church and and I do some things and like that's, you know, I'm not deeply committed. It's just kind of something I grew up doing. It's cultural for me. So those are the worst qualified people, those who know a little bit about Christianity but have never actually jumped in to know whether or not Christianity is true. And you know it's true, whether you're a Christian or not, because you experience this, we all experience this in lots of different places in our lives. Uh, I don't know which news channel you watch. I don't care which news channel you watch. I have no interest in discussing all of the crazy stuff on the news at the moment. But which news channel you watch definitely impacts the way you think about the news, doesn't it? And what I've noticed is that a lot of our commentators out there, what they like to do is they like to set up what the philosophers would call straw men, right? a straw man argument. It's where you, you represent a way of thinking or an idea in basically the worst light possible. 
it's such a mischaracterization or, or such a, a shallow look at what somebody believes that you can push it right over like a straw man. And folks, even people that I've encountered who are lousy thinkers rarely have strong straw man beliefs. They're beliefs that they've come to because they have felt deeply, because they have experienced deeply, sometimes even because they have thought deeply. And all of those things deeply matter. If we're just kind of treating Jesus casually, then we probably won't find Jesus being of any significance for us. But if we start to really explore who he is, I think we're either going to want to crucify him or we're going to want to follow him. I didn't pick those things on accident because that's exactly what the people who met Jesus, that's exactly how they responded. There was no one in the middle. There weren't people who said, hey, it seems okay. I don't get what all the fuss is about. People took sides when they met Jesus. And this Jesus that's being described here for us is the sort of Jesus that you take sides on. He is a mighty angel coming down from heaven. We're not getting confused in our Christology this morning, which is a fancy theological word for what we believe about Jesus. We know that he is fully God and fully human being at the same time, unmixed, unmingled, and yet true at the same time, human just like you and me, God just like the Father. And yet... He appears as this mighty messenger. Did you know what that word, that's what the word angelos or angel means in Greek, messenger. He comes down as this messenger and a mighty one, enormous from heaven, robed in a cloud. Only God is described as being riding on the clouds or robed in a cloud or in Daniel chapter 7, the one like a son of man, who we know this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, comes on the clouds. He has a rainbow above his head, and if you're confused about it, you can go just a few chapters earlier and find that God's throne has a rainbow around it. This is a mark of divinity. It's also interesting because a rainbow scripturally means that God wants to be at peace with the earth that he promises never to destroy the whole thing again, but to work to redeem and to save. What an interesting thing for the guy with legs of fire touching the earth. His face like the sun. Do you remember Moses when he uh, goes to talk with God on Mount Sinai? When he comes down, his face is shining and no one is willing to look at him. It's the reflected glory of God himself. He had to wear a veil, as a matter of fact, so people would talk to him. He places his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And then it makes something very clear for us. It says that this is the guy who has created heaven and earth. We're skipping to verse 6. He actually swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, where this angel comes from, the earth and all that is in it, which he's standing upon, and the sea and all that is in it, and said there will be no more delay. We're going to come to the delay bit in a moment, but I want to stick with this character. Here is a place where heaven and earth meet. Here is a way in which heaven has descended to the earth. And I'm reminded... John, who wrote the Apocalypse here, who wrote the book of Revelation, also writes a gospel, the gospel of John. 
And this is what he says. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In chapter 1, verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That word, he made his dwelling among us, might be better translated. It'd be awkward to translate it this way. But it has the sense of he tabernacled with us. He lived in a tent with us. And this takes us all the way back to the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness. And God went with them in a tent. Of course, he went before them as fire at night and a cloud by day. But the center of his dwelling with Israel was in the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. Jesus came to tabernacle with his people, to be the presence of God himself to his people. And here we see, again, heaven descending to earth in this angel, God dwelling with his people. He has his fiery legs on the land and on the sea, and in the coming chapters in the book of Revelation, we are about to see the beast from the sea and the beast from the land come and wreak havoc on God's people. And yet, the great angel from heaven... His feet cover the land and the sea. One of these beasts is called the dragon. And we, when you look at a, at a dragon, as it's often depicted, it looks a bit like a snake, right? Long and sinuous with some legs. Sometimes they have wings. It's like a big snake. And here's what's significant about that. Now we're all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Because in the garden, remember the snake, the serpent, tempted Eve to eat. She eats. God comes out. and He says, what have you done? They have a conversation. And then God says, because, he says to the serpent, because you have done this and led them astray, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head even as you strike his heel. So you have this angel standing sovereign and powerful over the beasts that are about to emerge. And the dragon reminds us of God's ultimate victory. The seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, crushes the head of the serpent. We don't think enough of Jesus. And it's very natural in a lot of ways. Uh, we have friends in this church who are having major surgery this week. If I were in that place, I know I'd be asking, okay, God, I know you created heaven and earth. I know you can do all of these things, but I'm not, can you really take care of my cancer? Will you really do it? I know you can, but will you? Will you really deliver me through? Am I really sealed as your son, as your daughter, so that I will be delivered. What really lies on the other side? We can't think enough about Jesus, who has passed through the veil before us. He is the only human being who ever died and didn't stay dead. He is the presence of God for his people, for all of us. He is the way and the truth and the life, the life. And yet we try and find life in all of these other places. We try and find life in our recreation. We try and find life in the meaning of our work. And we try and find life in our family. And you know what? They all contribute something to it. But what we find is that alone and even together, they can't bear the weight of our expectations. 
Our children never turn out quite the way we hoped, (laughs) even as we love them and are proud of them. That family relationship is often harder than we wanted it to be, harder than we think it should be. To be a mom, and it's true also of being a dad, maybe less so because I think moms are better than dads, but the truth about it is it's an exercise. There you go. Thank you, Helen. It's an exercise in feeling guilty, isn't it? I haven't done enough. I haven't cared for my children well enough. I threatened to stop playing Zelda for them last night because I was so upset. And then they were all like crying, and I'm like, I'm sorry. None of these things can bear the weight of our need for life. But Jesus can. Jesus can. He has died and come out unscathed. The marks of defeat and shame on him have become marks of glory and power and victory. And he says, follow me. He doesn't say go out and solve all the problems of the world yourself. I'm so grateful that God became a human being and came to earth and did my job, more or less. Because Jesus didn't save everybody. Right? Did you pick up on that? People nailed him to a tree and killed him. Sometimes people are mad at me. Well, people were mad at Jesus first. Jesus tells us, hey, don't think that you are greater than your master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now, that's not the only thing people will think. And let's be careful not to fall into that trap either. Everyone out there is the enemy and they hate us. No, we don't have to do that. But it is true that some people have set themselves up, obviously and forever, as enemies of Jesus Christ. And we are not greater than our master, and we will experience the same. We don't think enough of Jesus Christ. Now, let's get, dig a little more into the actual revelation bits here, the, the point of the passage. When the angel shouted with the roar of a lion, again, reminding us of chapter 5, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Well, this is confusing. But if you're following along, if you're keeping the context in mind, what have we had? Seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven thunders. Most modern commentators believe that these are seven more judgments being announced against the earth. And I really like what Richard Bauckham says here, an English scholar. He says that these seven thunders seem to be, I mean, you would expect, we've had judgments on a quarter of the earth and then a third of the earth. And now you'd expect the seven thunders to be judgments on half of the earth. But instead, it's sealed up as if God has said no more. And then we come to the angel saying, there will be no more delay. The seventh trumpet, when that comes, it will be done. The mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And I think that what we're hearing now is that the time for repentance, the time to come and turn to Jesus Christ, the time in which God will send the warning judgments, which we are afraid of and yet which are good because they point us to the truth about who God is and the real price of sin in our world, that time is ending. It doesn't go on forever. And now you understand the sermon title, right? Time is short. 
there will come an end to the warnings. Bauckham suggests that the end of the warnings comes not least because people would not listen. Because instead of calling out to God, they called to the mountains and the rocks. Because instead of repenting of their wrong thoughts as they are tormented spiritually and psychologically, instead of recognizing we are all going to die and we can't stop it and turning to the one who himself defeated death, They go to death instead. And there is a point when God will say very well, it's enough. C.S. Lewis, I believe it was, wrote that uh, to those uh, who will not say to God, thy will be done, God will say in turn, very well then, thy will be done. Lewis's point is that although eternal life may be open to every single person, God won't make anyone go there. And if you refuse, God will say very well. There will be no more delay. The mystery of God is about to be accomplished. And this marks a turning point in the book of Revelation. We've gone from warning to war. And we are about to see how God fights war through his people on the earth. We've already seen it modeled in chapters 2 and 3 in particular. You might notice uh, most of those letters to the churches, those seven letters to the churches, talk about the one who is victorious, the one who conquers. And what does that look like? Well, let's take a quick peek. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is to Ephesus. To the one who is victorious, what does that look like? Remembering your first love. Isn't that a strange thing? Does that sound like it wins wars? Do you want to go to Ukraine and say, just remember your first love? No, but God's fighting a different kind of war, isn't he? To Smyrna, God says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you your life as a victor's crown. Does that sound like a weapon of war? Faithful unto death. The church in Pergamum. Repent from these false teachings that are present in your church. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Again, hold to the right teaching. Don't do it like Ephesus. That was their problem. They got so concerned about being right all the time, they forgot to love anybody. It's not the only important thing, but it is important. And it's all like that. Here's the foretaste. God doesn't say go out and be smarter. God doesn't say go out and be better. God doesn't say go out and build better social institutions. Now, God also doesn't say, make sure you aren't smarter and make sure you don't build any social institutions. But he says, that's not the path to victory. The path to victory is be faithful unto the end. And that's how you'll find life. It's a very strange sort of war we're going to see. Now, here's John's job. Here's how we know this is a seam in the book, a transition point in the book. 
The voice that John had heard from heaven spoke again, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And I'd love to know how John is supposed to do this. Like, hey, you! I don't know. But he goes up and he says, can I please have the scroll, Mr. Scary Angel? And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. This is not the first time this sort of imagery has appeared in Scripture. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were both also told to eat a scroll, and it was sweet in their mouths because they were God's words, and they're good. But it was sour in John's stomach, which gives us a sense of how difficult the next several chapters of Revelation are going to be, how difficult the life of the church is. We're walking the way of Jesus Christ. I love, I love, I'm going to end with this, I think, but I love how Jesus, some people came up to him, said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Right? And Jesus says, well, foxes of the field have dens and birds of the air have nests, but I have nowhere to put my head. Jesus said, so you're willing to be homeless, right? I don't know if that should speak into our contemporary moment or not. <laughs> But Jesus, uh, this man goes away. Jesus says, count the cost. Are you really willing to follow me? It's not all fun and games. This isn't a health and wealth gospel I'm giving you. This is the gospel of true life. Another person comes up and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my parents. Jesus says, yeah, you can't hesitate like that. The commitment you make to me has to be stronger than any other commitment in your life. Can we trust God? Can we really trust Jesus with that commitment? The only answer we can give is that Jesus believed in it so deeply, he was so confident, that even though he so didn't want to, he went to the cross and he died in our place so that we could live. He won life for us. Sometimes it's a little hard to measure, isn't it? It feels a lot better in the moment to complain than it does to find whatever is noble and good and pure and beautiful and right and to think on those things. It's a lot easier to give up in the moment and say, Jesus, you are asking too much of me and forget all that Jesus wants to deliver to us. I remember uh, C.S. Lewis again in his essay, The Weight of Glory, which should be required reading for Christians, by the way. Lewis talks about how our desires, they're not too strong. He says they're not too strong. And, and that's hard to believe, isn't it? Because when sin comes along, when we are tempted, we're saying, oh, you dang desires, you're too strong. <laughs> I'm being dragged away and enticed, which is exactly what John, or James chapter 1 says. But each one is tempted when his desire conceives, gives birth to sin, he is dragged away and enticed. But Lewis says, no, it's, the problem isn't that our desires are too strong. They're too weak because we're fooling around with sex and with drugs and with alcohol when we be, could be having the living water, that if we drink from that, we will never be thirsty again. We could be desiring Jesus Christ, and if we were really desiring him, then we would do anything to know him and to follow him. Maybe some of you guys out there, maybe some of you ladies as well, you know, if, if you're married or if you've even just ever liked a boy or liked a girl or however that works, remember being there? It's, matter of fact, let me give you an example. There's this uh, movie from Pixar, in, 
Inside out? Is that what it is? Yeah. And, and there's a, you, you go into this little girl's brain and emotions and, and see how all of these things work, how the interior works. And her emotions are personified, you know, controlling different things that she says and does and thinks. And there's a moment where she, she has this dream. She's a tween, I think. And she's got this dream of, of the perfect boy. Right, and he's this guy, he's got the hair, and I don't know, whatever tween girls like. And, and he says, I would die for Riley. Right? And you felt like that at some point, haven't you? Or you wish someone felt that way about you. Or you feel, I would do anything. Maybe you've said it. Now, we're, we're pretty conservative folks out here in Lemon Cove. We might not actually talk like that. But I know we feel that way sometimes in our hearts, don't we? There's nothing I wouldn't do for my children for my wife, for my husband, for my best friend. There's nothing I wouldn't do for that person. But Jesus has done it first. That's how deeply he desires you. He didn't just say, I would die for Riley. He died for you. Totally unjust. Totally unfair. Because he didn't just die for you, he died because of you. He died for all of the broken things that we have cooperated with and brought into this world to make them right. We think too little of Jesus. And the more we think of him, the more we will live like him. God warns us that time is short. There's only so long to find Jesus before it's too late. What will you say today? Will you say to God, God, your will be done? Or will God say to you, well, your will be done instead? Would you close your eyes with me? I'm going to give you a moment. What do you need to, how do you need to respond to what God is speaking to you this morning? Is it time? Have you been saying maybe to Jesus or even outright no to Jesus and this morning you realize that's got to change? There's only so much time that's left and we've been wasting it on these things that don't satisfy. Maybe you're not totally sold yet. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know if Jesus can satisfy me. That's all right. He'll take you that way. If you want to follow Jesus this morning, if you want to meet him for the first time, I just want to invite you to, there's no magic formula, by the way. It's not a magic prayer that makes it happen. It's just an attitude and thought of our hearts that says, okay, God, you be Lord. You guide me. And then our everyday, mundane giving our lives over to God. Some days we get it pretty right and some days not so right, but that's why Jesus died. He takes care of it all. So if you want to say something to God to express that this morning, I just invite you to, you can pray silently after me in your own heart. You can pray out loud if you want everyone to know. God, I don't know everything about you. But I have looked for life and I haven't found it. And I hear there's life in Jesus. And I want that life. 
I want to give up my old non-Jesus ways. And I want the life that you lead me to. And that's it. And if you prayed like that this morning, you have a new family here. The people sitting all around you. And don't walk out without letting your family know you've become a part of it. If uh, you're here this morning, you're thinking, I love Jesus, but not nearly as much as he deserves. I just invite you to take a moment to pray with me, and I'm going to pray over you, and you can use whatever words you want. Again, out loud in your hearts, just however you want to speak to God. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. You are so good. You are so great. And we are only just beginning. I am only just beginning to know what it means to love you. And I want to know more. Holy Spirit, fill me up so that I may know Jesus and worship him. Amen.